Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to New Books in Critical Theory, which is a podcast that's part of the New Books Network. On this episode, I'm delighted to welcome back Professor Nick Crossley, who's a professor of sociology at the University of Manchester, to talk about connecting sounds, the social life of music. So welcome back to the podcast. Thank you. So I I don't know if I'd call this a sort of a sequel, but it follows on from uh, your last book, book, which was a a book about uh, punk using a kind of social network analysis, relational sociology perspective. I guess this book tries to set a broader agenda about relational sociology and also shows the benefits of social network analysis. And that's the place to start, really, is if you could tell me, I guess, what this kind of understanding of the world is, this, this relational perspective and, and you know, how that's driven you to write the book. Yeah, OK. So, um, so, so relational sociology is my way of trying to stress the importance of interaction relationships and networks as the as the fundamental underlying concepts for sociology and i suppose um if if i was going to make the case briefly i would contrast that with a kind of an individualism on the one hand which will say the basic units of the social world are individual people um or a holism, on the other hand, of the sort of functionalist and to some extent Marxist kind, where you have a notion of an all-encompassing whole, um, which has its own logic and of development and its own needs and capacity to to fulfil those needs. Um, and, and relational sociology is trying to come somewhere in between that and say, well, there's no point in talking about individuals as 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 independent and self-sufficient beings we we can only exist in relationship to and interaction with other people um uh, but at the same time we keep that sense of agency and we keep that dynamism and we don't defer to a higher level concept such as society or, or social um, society in that functionalist or, or history in that kind of Marxist um, sense. Um, but we do have a sense of structure and that sense of structure is is the network. Uh, that, that's what gives this sense of, well, a society is a network with multiple relations and interactions going on in it of all different kinds. Um, and in the, in the punk book, I had tried to look at the emergence of punk um, in those terms. So to, to look at the networks of people who were responsible for um, for making punk in the innovate the innovation of, of punk in the mid nineteen seventies. Um, but in a sense that that book really insofar as as a relational perspective was concerned, it really only focused on the networks. And what I wanted to do in this book was to try to step back from that 
and um, and to say, okay, so networks are important and I'm going to say more about networks and I'm going to say more about why they're important and how we should think about them and all the rest of it. But I also want to um, step back from the networks and look at the other aspects of uh, a relational sociology that I wasn't able to talk about in that first book and also to think about them more in the abstract, to think about them in a more general theoretical way rather than being tied to any specific empirical um, example. Uh, I mean, it it sort of struck me as well, um, and this, you know, I might have misread it, but um, one of the uh, kind of classic critiques of a sociological perspective on any kind of aesthetic form is, yeah, but, you know, you've not told us about the music, the Mm -hmm. art, you've not told us about the drama or or whatever. Um, And it struck me that, in this book, you're, you're trying to kind of respond into that a bit. And you bring in this um, kind of definition of music, this uh, conception of musicking, um, this this new term uh, that you use. And I'm interested in, in how you sort of use this relational approach to, I suppose, pay more attention to the aesthetic form. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, that's, that, that's exactly it. I mean, there's, I suppose there's a... There's a there's a twofold challenge going on. Um, on the one hand, there is a challenge to the te- the tendency for sociology simply to explore the context of music and not to engage with the form itself. Um, but there's also a challenge to musicology, and it's not in fairness not really my challenge so much as a challenge that I've picked up on. And uh, and run with that, that various musicologists have um, have posited to the idea of music as, say, for example, a text in in a narrow sense, or music as an object, music as as a thing. Um, and what these musicologists have suggested is that we think of music as an activity. Um, we think of music as something that that is done. Um, and what I've tried to do is to expand on and develop that by saying, well, it's an interactivity. Um, music is something that happens between us. Um, I mean, it, I suppose the, the limit case being the interaction between um, the maker of sounds and the hearer of, of those um, sounds uh, which in the absolute limit case might be the same person, but is still an, but is still an interaction. Um, and so I've tried to, I, I've then tried to work with that to think of of the music itself as activity, as social interaction. And because it's social interaction, it's therefore something that sociologists can engage with and have something meaningful to say about. Um, not something that we need to step back to simply to defer to musicologists. I mean, obviously, we have to defer to musicologists on some, in some respects and for some purposes, but we don't have, we can engage with music itself, the music in itself. And I suppose ethnomusicologists show us that to, to some extent, that there are some musical forms that absolutely you 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 can only um, make sense of them as ongoing interactions. Um, but I think it's true of all music, you know, even when we go home and we plug the headphones in 
and we'll listen to a bit. There's still an interaction going on there, and 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 it never happens without an interaction. Yeah, I mean, I mean, music as a as an interaction, as a, as an activity, as a doing, as you know, something that has a, an inherently sort of social element, even if that's a very you know kind of closed um, and individualized social mm-hmm. element, raises the the kind of um, I suppose the obvious idea of like. Uh, music having a world attached to it, uh, yeah. and obviously, like art worlds, is a really famous uh, kind of idea uh, from from Becker's work. You know that kind of like social perspective uh, on the production of the the aesthetics. And I, I was struck not that you you know kind of said, oh yeah, and we can have music worlds as well, but the way you you were trying to use that idea to tell, I suppose, to map maybe or tell the story of how people would understand particular kinds of things like genres. Yeah, um, and the obvious way um, that you know it struck me to kind of ask you about what a music world is is to ask. So, what's like mainstream music, and what you know, what are alternatives to it? Because I, I was I was quite struck by the way you didn't just kind of say music is a social activity. There is a doing, but you were keen to do a kind of well. There's a political yeah. economy going on. You know, there's an industry. You know, all of these things um, are sort of interrelated to give us a sense of something as I guess as normal as calling something mainstream. Yeah, I mean the mainstream is is an interesting one, and it was a it was um, I suppose in some ways it was a bit of of a challenge. I mean I think music worlds are quite easy to think about when you think about obscure or alternative music worlds because we can all recognize that there's a particular community of people that are all connected to one another they form a network um, and they are distinguished by the particular sorts of events that they go to maybe the way they dress and certainly the kinds of music that they listen to and the way that they talk about those types of music so the alternatives are in some senses conspicuous and and um and obvious the the mainstream was a little bit more a little bit more difficult um and um and and uh some some writers in the field have have just dismissed the idea of a mainstream um altogether but i suppose i mean and again this is condensing a huge amount in, into a few words uh, i mean w- one of the things that that struck me is is the way that people talk about breaking into the mainstream and i think that that metaphor of breaking into the mainstream suggests that you have got a bounded entity a relatively closed entity and and, and an entity which which musicians who aren't a part of it certainly experience as a reality and as something that they're unable to that they're unable to break um, into, and so so then from that idea, I, I mean, again, thinking of of networks, I was I was thinking of, well, who occupies those dominant positions within the charts? Who headlines the main festivals or plays on the main stages of the main festivals? Who do we see in? The newspapers, in the ma- in the magazines, in the um, uh, uh, on on who do we hear on the radio? Who's interviewed on the television, and and so on. And I think, I mean, it's clear that you've got all of those different sites, and those different sites are linked 
by the fact that you've got the same people moving between them. And so this then starts to give me an idea of, of a network and of, um, of a mainstream world, which is indeed very difficult to break into because it's very difficult to sell huge amounts of uh, your music or to occupy, uh, well, yeah, to sell huge amounts of your recordings if you're not headlining the big festivals and playing at the big arenas. It's difficult if you're not being covered in the daily newspapers and on magazines and and getting radio airplay. Um, But equally, you're not going to get radio airplay unless you are selling huge numbers of records. So you've you've got these kind of vicious circles. um, And I think it's these vicious circles between all of these markers of, um, of, of mainstream success, uh, which constitute the world, they constitute that network, and they, they generate a boundary around and outside of that network. So then it seems to me that it does become entirely meaningful in the way that I talk about it to, um, uh, to, to think of a, of a mainstream um, uh, to think of a mainstream music world, and I, and I suppose as well, you know, colloquially that 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 just uh, figures in our sense that all these superstar musicians know one another because they're going to the same parties, they're they're going to they're appearing on the same um, stages and and so on, and it, it kind of creates a bit of a club, it creates a network or a world. And so that's the that that that's the the mainstream, which, like I say, I thought was a bit more difficult, maybe, to think about than the smaller alternative worlds. But they're exactly the same, you know. Free jazz improvisation is is a world. Folk is a world. Metal is a world. And so on. I mean, it, it sort of struck me uh, <laughs> that like that's exactly what you'd expect—a relational social network kind of uh, take on understanding music to say. But that's really just one element of the book, yeah. Um, and you know what? What I liked, I mean, those things that are great about the book. But one of the things I liked about the book was um, you kind of set out the theoretical approach, illustrate this really straightforwardly with the musical worlds idea, and again, you know, with um, reactions to the mainstream selling out ideas. You know, all, all the kind of stuff you'd almost kind of expect. But actually, much of the book is about meaning, yeah. uh, which is something that, um, you know, if people are familiar with social network analysis, for example, is one of the things that is often stripped out. You know, if you look at a network diagram, you can understand relationships, you can understand how, you know, power works, how inequality functions. But then, you know, the sense of like, well, why does this matter? What does this mean? You, you know, it, it is often not there. And, you know, certainly almost half of the book, you know, perhaps more, is taken up with this uh, question about meaning. Um, and there's really, you know, straightforward, uh, I, I think, um, question to raise about that. Like, where is meaning in this kind of analysis? And, and I suppose, like, why were you so interested to write so much about uh, meaning, both in terms of the music and in terms of people's lives as well? Um, well, I, I, where to start with that one? Uh, so, so I suppose, I suppose, in part, there was a recognition that one of the things that I really hadn't said much about in the punk book, in the earlier book, was meaning. That, and, and I felt that to be 
a bit of an omission. And I felt that there may well be people who would read that book and say, well, that's great, but what did punk mean? What was it all about? Um, so so, so I, I partly wanted to um, address that, I think. Um, partly, I suppose, there's a biographical element that music has just been my life and identity ever since I was about 10, you know, 9 or 10. And, um, and so I think when something when it is so central to your own life, you kind of have an obligation to recognise that it is the kind of thing that can be so important and so central to people's lives and to, to acknowledge that. Um, and I think I was, I was also interested... At, well, there were, there were two things really that came from the literature... I mean, one was this curious, um, this this curious thing that yeah, I think you still find to some extent in in aspects of musicology and of um, philosophical aesthetics, where it's still a question: Is music meaningful? Does music have any meaning, or does it have any external meaning, um, at least? Um, and uh, and it's, it struck me as a as a kind of um, I suppose uh, an outrageous question, really, that anybody could 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 think that you would ever answer no to that. And yet, of course, at the same time, when it comes to it, it's quite difficult to pin down. Well, you know how and in what way and what does it mean to say that music has meaning? So I just got intellectually drawn into that and thought, oh, I've got to give an answer to this. I've got to say. Um, why it is and um, and and then I suppose just also when meaning is um, is uh, recognized in both in sociology and cultural studies and, and and musicology to some extent the tendency to want to pin that on the text um, uh, I, I mean very often also to pin it onto lyrics um and and so it i my thought was well that's not the relational answer because music it, it was was not we're saying that music is interaction so therefore the meaning of music must come about in interaction and i wanted to try to consider some of the ways in which that's true um some of the ways in which we can we can identify that um, and I think that needs to be there in in the relational perspective because otherwise the relational perspective does just become a fairly dry mathematical thing. It lends itself maybe to an economic analysis of exchange of resources and, and all the rest of it. But um, yeah, but but it, it doesn't. But it, it you've got to show that that what's going on in these networks is the generation of meaning and to some extent that's why they matter that's why they're important because they generate meaning i mean how does that work for people and you know a sense of identity or a sense of self so uh yeah so so part part of what i try to to look at is is just is the kind of you know how particular musical figures might take on meaning for people as this kind of a semiotic um, analysis of um, of of that, um, but yeah, I mean, as as you say, 
um, another dimension of this is about what is, is engaging with current debates about uses of music and what we use music um, for. And, um, and and the answer that comes, I suppose, from the literature and fr- in relationship to my own self-analysis um, and in relationship to talking to students is that music very often, we often use music as a way of building identity um, and, and of our identity work. And that, that can occur in lots of different kinds of ways. I mean, so there's the sort of obvious thing about um what we like or what we say we like, marking out our status and positioning us in relationship to other people. Um, so I like really cool, hip, esoteric music that the masses have never heard of. And, and so the, the, that, that, there's, there's that dimension. But we can also then go beyond that, I think, to sort of say, well, you know, I think sometimes music... Music help music is involved in people's identities because it it provides a context where in which they can think about their own uh, their own life and their own biography and they might think about issues that are going on in their own world. You know, the kind of somehow a song manages to encapsulate for people a feeling that they're struggling to articulate, or maybe a song um, the message of a song seems to answer the questions that people are asking in in their existential um, their, their existential moments. Um, so that's another dimension. The sense that you know, I, I mean, I'm sure I'm sure many people listen to and obsess about Morrissey because Morrissey understands them. You know, Morrissey and Morrissey understands the existential misery that they're going through that nobody else does. I mean, less so nowadays. Less so nowadays, <laughs> yeah, yeah. Okay, I'm sure I'm sure my age is as well. Um uh, I, I, but but then there's also the the idea of, of how we might use um music to manage our emotional states which i think is also again a part of identity work so um i'm really going to show my age again now uh, but before i used to go to an exam you know i would listen to the clash uh, at full kind of volume and it and it gave me that empowering sense of right okay you know if Joe Strum was going to take on the world, I can at least manage, you know, a sociology exam uh, or whatever it might be. So, so there's that. And I came across a lot of references in, in the literature to the cathartic sense that people have, that their, their, their frustrations and their anger and, and all the rest of it are things that they can work through simply by riding the song, you know, following the song through. And venting is a word that, that comes up quite a lot in the literature. People venting their feelings by, you know, whatever it is, playing air guitar, dancing, moshing, or just pretending to be the artist, that, that kind of identification with the artist. You know, or alternatively, music might be the way in which we get ourselves ready for a Friday night. You know, music is is kind of that playing the music that we're going to be listening to puts us in the party mood, gets us ready to to go out or or bring you know brings us down again. Music, if we need to relax, what do we do? Well, sometimes we just listen to calming, relaxing music, and 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 so all of those different ways in which music allows us to 
um, allows us to manage our own emotional states, I think is another facet, another dimension of identity work. Um, and and, and I, I suppose once I first started to read that stuff, it just seemed so true because it was describing me. Um, and, there, and I thought, well, you know, and, and it's part of those the interactions that I'm talking about. That those so so when we're doing music, we are um, we're doing lots of other things as well. You know, doing music, we can be doing economic activity, doing political activity, doing identity work. I, I refer to it in the book as multivalence. You know, the idea that the same interaction might be fulfilling multiple um, ends or all simultaneously. Yeah, I mean, all of the examples you've given there, I think. Are- are really powerful and connect to how people sort of use music and you know kind of experience uh, the world through music but you know they're, they're sort of on an individual level and the way the book turns um, from that is to think about well actually music is productive in lots of other ways um, and there's a discussion of both politics towards the end of the book but also uh, an engagement with the idea that music can be um, productive of the sense of a public sphere as, yeah. as well and I was really struck by that because you know usually we think of public spheres uh, often through kind of media scholarship whether it's you know analysis of the news or whether it's things like uh, you know kind of shared social movements stuff like mm-hmm. this and it's you know it's comparatively rare that um, unless you know I totally misunderstand the literature that you'd get something like well actually music produces public spheres as much as mm-hmm. the news does or you know uh, particular social movements do and, and I'm interested to hear more about that actually because it moves us really kind of concretely from that individual sense of meaning back I think, yeah. to you know, the level of the social yeah well I think um so I I I was cautious in the book in how I approached the relationship between music and the public sphere um because because clearly, I mean, I suppose my source for the public sphere is Habermas and you kind of have this idea of uh, rational deliberation. And, and obviously music in many respects is very far removed from those kinds of things. But it seemed to me on, on the one hand that music can be, well, music can be a provocation for thinking about these um, th- these various kinds of things. And and it's a and it's a provocation which sometimes gets in behind the the defences I suppose that rational debate might um, erect against it. So you know you can you can hear um, any any number of politicians and activists talking about trying to persuade you of a particular political course. Um, and and be relatively unmoved by that, um, and yet a song which just engages your imagination, it just captures, so it might then force you to think about it, and it might create an, an empathy which forces you and makes you feel obliged to engage with a, um, a particular kind of issue. And it seems to me that that is... Um, that, that that is quite important and it gives maybe groups who are um, excluded and who want to make a claim in the public sphere it it helps to bring them into the public sphere I mean I think of a 
you, you know, I, I, I think of a song, um, I'm trying to, like Strange Fruit, uh, where, so, so for me, the, um, in particular, the Nina Simone version of Strange Fruit. And, you know, I mean, in a sense, it forces the, um, uh, the, it, it, it creates an, the, the, the sadness and the sorrow in the song kind of gives you a sense of what the community on the receiving end of the lynching in, in the American South. I mean, obviously, I'm not suggesting for a minute that, that you, you know what it's like or that you feel, but you, you at least get a glimpse of, of that. And that's, and that is in a sense more powerful than somebody just telling you about it. That that kind of draw that draws you in. So so there's 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 that dimension. There's that way in which I think music is able to provoke reflection and debate and thought. And it's not a substitute for it, but it might be a stimulus that that makes us feel compelled then to engage and talk about issues that we might not otherwise feel compelled or to to talk about. And then I suppose that there are, I mean, in, in my experience, music has always, has always had a, that, that dimension of political um, engagement with it. It seems to me that sometimes the, the collective identities that form around particular types of music um, are often also political um identities so there's a there's a sense maybe of that certain alternative music worlds um also stand for um alternative political you know sort of political causes or oppositional political causes of one sort or another and you get a flavor of that at gigs and you get even more of a flavour of that maybe at um, at festivals that and so these things again are being talked about. They're being talked about in the um, uh, in in the um, in the gig in the space of of the gig um, by by people and people feeling just because of their because of their collective identity because of their collective attachment to a particular music world they then maybe again feel the inclination the need to talk about the political issues that, that go along um, with that I mean I think it's interesting because I think I think brexit has uh, has been problematic in in that respect I mean my, my maybe slightly cynical take on it is that artists, aren't entirely sure which way their audiences go on it. And so they, they've been, perhaps been reluctant to, you know, to, to talk about it. But then occasionally in, in some sorts of gigs and some sorts of contexts, it becomes a discussion. The artist does talk about it and, and, it, and it becomes a, a focus and something that, that people do start to talk about and maybe do start to build into their own um their their own kind of um identity and then i mean there are more straightforward cases i mean there there've been a number of writers who've written about hip hop and uh, and and rap as 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 a as a sort of context where excluded groups in this case um african americans um are denied access to many of the sorts of outlets that you were talking about earlier the um, they perhaps feel that the political parties don't represent them. They perhaps feel 
that the um, the, the mass circulation media don't represent them and represent their view. And so a music world becomes a space in which their views can be articulated. I mean, again, not that anybody is simply going to hear a particular rapper say something and then agree with it and, and, and you know, um, anything like that. But there's, but there's a provocation there and there's an expression perhaps of views and a public expression that gives legitimacy perhaps to views which, which certain groups in society feel are their issues that don't get talked about in, in any other kind of context. So it was a bit garbled, but I hope I covered the basis. I mean, there's loads more we could have talked about in the book. Um, you know, we, we've mainly... Understand we've been talking about music, uh, but also the book, you know, is a theoretical engagement with Bourdieu, with Adorno, you know, as well as with uh, people like Becker and then, you know, the kind of broader um, relational sociology tradition. I mean, it, it seems, I think I mentioned uh, early on, you know, this is a bit of a sort of agenda setting book. And it seems almost kind of strange if you've written an agenda setting book to say, so what are you going to do next then? <laughs> but yeah, you, you know, what, what I guess, you know, what, what comes after something like this, back to a more detailed case study approach perhaps, or, you know, is it time to stop writing about music? What, what are you thinking of now? Um, so, yeah, I mean, you, you, it's, uh, I'm wondering about that. <laughs> that's, that's a question that's what I'm thinking about myself at the moment. I mean, I... I have one or two ideas for some of the kind of returning to some of the theoretical questions, um, which are slightly divorced from the music, um, but some of the theoretical questions relating to relational sociology that, in a sense, were the, the book helped me to think through and got me to a point with, but now I perhaps want to step back and. And, and have addressed some of those and have a go at some of those. But I certainly intend to carry on with the, you know, with, with the music. At, at the moment, I'm desperately trying to resist the temptation just to kind of repeat something that I did in relationship to punk, in relationship to some other music world. I mean, that would be, well, I say, I say it would be easy. I mean, it, it wouldn't be... It wouldn't be easy because it's it, you know there's there's lots of difficulties involved in actually trying to get to do it, but um, but there's a temptation there to think oh I wonder if I could do it for and and you know and then add your own genre in in there, uh, but I certainly do want to take the music the relational analysis of music further um, and to pick up on some of the um, threads within the book um but i do want to do them empirically um and that to some extent depends upon me uh finding an interesting empirical example finding something that i want to spend a bit of time looking at and thinking about and researching and i suppose it will then also depend on when i when i find that that um that empirical example that i want to work with also then having to think about which of the issues that I talk about in the book um, I, I, I can address by those means. Yeah, I mean, you, you mentioned the meaning and I'd, I'd love to, would love to do something empirical which explored some of that in more detail. 
but at the moment I can only think of really crappy ways of doing it. So, <laughs> so, so who knows? If I think of a good way, of what I think of as a good way of doing it, uh, that would be interesting. Then, then, then I'll I would do something like that. But it's but yeah, there's going to be more music to come. But I'm not quite sure what it is yet.